Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6, please. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 10 and 11 this morning. And it's, um, I thought about it, but, you know, it's quite appropriate, at least I thought it was, that uh, we're going to look at knowing your enemy. And Paul's talking about being a soldier of Christ on Veterans Day, or close to it, Veterans Weekend. The true Christian, the biblical Christian, the Bible-believing, Bible-living Christian, and I mentioned it the other day, I I think we need to start calling Christians by the biblical description, because a lot of people think they're born in America, they're Christians, or they're raised by a Christian family, it automatically makes them a Christian, or they go to church and it makes them a Christian, but it's a lot more than that. The true Christian, described in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, who lives the faithful life, that's described in chapters 4 through 6, verse 9, can be sure that he will or she will be involved in the spiritual warfare that we're going to study in verses 10 through 20. The faithful Christian life is a battle, no matter what your role is in life. It's an all-out warfare because when God starts to bless, Satan starts to attack. And if we're walking worthy of our calling, that is, if we're walking in humility rather than pride, in unity rather than divisiveness, in the new man or new woman rather than the old, in love rather than lust, in light rather than darkness, in wisdom rather than foolishness, walking filled with the Spirit rather than the drunkenness of wine, and in mutual submission rather than self-serving independence, then, then we can be absolutely sure we will have opposition. We will have a fight on our hands. Jesus' ministry started with a terrible battle with Satan. Matthew chapter 3, last verse, it says, Jesus was being baptized, the heavens were opened, the Spirit descended upon him as a dove, and the Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Great experience, wonderful time. The very next verse said he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And great example. As Jesus' ministry ended, Satan overwhelmed him again in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was coming to the next great move of his life. The cross. Satan attacked him. It says that Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and it says that he, he, it, he, there was such force upon him, such you know, great pressure, that it said he sweat great drops of blood. But that's where he won the battle to go to the cross. There are so many other lessons to be learned from Jesus' ministry, but these two things teach us that the battle may not get easier as we become more obedient to God. And if anything teaches us that Satan will come against those even stronger who continue to serve the Lord effectively. And as believers grow stronger, Satan's attacks are going to go stronger. The Christian who continually wants to grow in his knowledge of and obedience to God's word and to serve the Lord more faithfully won't find ministry getting easier. And as the Lord gives us victory over certain temptations and weaknesses, Satan will find other areas to attack us in. Faithful witnessing, faithful preaching and teaching and every other effective service that we do for God won't only bring victories, but they'll also bring our own special 
problems and opposition. A Christian, with no, a Christian who no longer has to struggle against the world, the flesh and the devil, is a Christian who has fallen either into sin or complacency. A Christian who has no conflict is a Christian who has retreated from the front lines of service. G. Campbell Morgan said, If you have no adversaries, you had better move out and find the places where you get them. Most people don't invite opposition, but the loyal servant of Christ will not run from it. Now, up to this point, the Apostle Paul has told us about how we are, to, how we are uh, in the heavenlies. We are in the heavenlies. That's our citizenship. And we've been told about the worthy walk of our hard position, and we've been told about the gifts and their purpose. We've been told about the walk of the believer as a new man in Christ. We've been told about the walk of the believer as a dear child of God and the inner life of the spirit-filled believer. We've been told about the married life of spirit-filled believers through the illustration of Christ's love for the church, his bride. And we've been told about the family life of the spirit-filled believers as, a, as children and, and servants. And now, Paul's going to talk to us about the warfare of the spirit-filled believer. He's going to tell us about the warrior's power. And then from this point on, Paul says, let's look at verses 10 through 11. Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, we're going to look at the armor next week, piece by piece, and what it's used for. But right now, in verses 10 through 11, we're going to look at who our enemy is. Until Christ is put on, you're without armor. You're like a soldier without your armor. You're defensive and offensive armor. And I think there's a lot of people who don't accept or don't like the military view of Christianity. And they would, like, they, they would try to get us to think positive and peacefully. As if spiritual battles didn't exist. As if Satan really was, you know, some fictitious character and, you know, it's just difficulties that we're going through. But an old preacher one time went to visit a young preacher who just got out of seminary and he got his church and he was starting his ministry. And the old preacher went to see him and say, how you doing? And pray with him and if there was anything he could help him with or any questions that he might have to help him in his ministry. Because the minister said, you know, now that you're starting a church and you know, you, you're going to want to serve the Lord, I said, he said, Satan's going to come and he's going to attack you. And he's going to try to hinder the work of God. And the young preacher said, you know what? I get so tired of hearing that. Satan this and Satan's going to attack and Satan causes problems and Satan, you know, hassles. He says, he says, he says Satan never bothers me. And the preacher stopped and he looked at him and he said, Son, maybe you're walking in the same direction. <laughs> Satan's not going to beat a dead horse. If you're not work serving God and you're not obedient to God and you're not loving God and walking with God, why should Satan bother you? He says, let him go to church. Let him have a good time. He's not doing anything for the Lord. He's not being effective for the kingdom of God. He says, that's right where I like them. Just going to church. 
They try, like I said, they try to get us to think positive and peacefully. We've seen the bumper stickers, envision peace. War is not the answer. Think peace and coexist and has all of the religious symbols of all the different religions. Coexist. Well, all good in thought, but not in reality. Because God is the true and living God and, and the rest are just men's ideas of what religion is. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time of war and a time of peace. Some people get the idea and even teach that when you come to Jesus, you're no longer at war. You've left it. And they look at the Christian life as the solution to all of our problems. If you're sick, Jesus will heal you. If you're discouraged, Jesus will make you happy. And if you're poor, oh, Jesus is going to make you rich. So people are given the idea from those who think like this that you're supposed to, you're supposed to be healthy, you're supposed to be wealthy, and you're supposed to be prosperous. And that to believe in Jesus means your life will be smooth sailing from now on. And man, you're going to enjoy everything. Nothing but good times. We've also been taught that, that we're standing on, on, on ground that Jesus has already won for us. And, and there's some truth to that. So that our, our battles are always defensive rather than offensive. The problem with this kind of thinking is that it gives the idea that in the Christian life, there's nothing or not much that we have to do as Christians. We just sit back and cruise into heaven. And our big genie in the sky, he'll take care of everything. There's nothing that we need to do as Christians. Paul said in Philippians 2.13, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So God is working in you and providing the power that you need to do for him. See, he does what you can't do. But there's a part in salvation, there's a responsibility on part. God does his, I do mine. We've all heard the words, uh, uh, you know, they were, I don't hear them as much anymore, but when they first came out, oh, let go and let God. The battle is God's, not ours. So just let it go. Let God do all the fighting. All you have to do is just stand your ground, which is true because Paul uses the word stand four times. But when he talks about the armor of God, he doesn't tell us that there's just defensive armor. There's also offensive weapons. And as I said minutes ago, a few minutes ago, some people don't like the military viewpoint of the Christian life. And, and, and hey, it, it's a good thing to want peace on earth. There, nobody likes war. Nobody wants war. But here's the problem and the reality. As long as there is sin in this world, the battle between the devil and God's people will continue to go on. And if we just back off and refuse to fight, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, sooner or later you are going to fall in the heat of the battle. Paul used the images of war to describe the Christian life. Listen to 2 Timothy 2.3. Paul said to Timothy, Be a good soldier of Jesus Christ, Timothy. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 
No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Sounds pretty much like a military life. In Isaiah 59, 17, we have the fullest description of the Lord as a warrior. Isaiah 59, 17 says, For he, that is God, for God put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Exodus 15, 3, it says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Psalm 44, 1, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. When Jesus said, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, speaking of the church, Jesus was using a military illustration. Because in biblical times, a a common military tactic used by armies was to break down the gate of the enemy's fortress with a battering ram. Because once they got inside, it was all over. They could destroy the enemy. And in the same way, Jesus says Satan and his army can't hold up or stop the forward march of Christianity. The church will win the war. But as a Christian soldier, you need to be ready. You have to be ready. The Christian life, you know, this this world is not a playground. And a lot of Christians treat this world as a playground. It's a battlefield. And Satan has set it with booby traps. And whether you like it or not, you are called to be a soldier and a good one. And you're called to endure hardship. And you're commanded to fight the good fight, 1 Timothy 6.12. Sidney Smith says this, Evil is to be endured. Let us never forget the fifth and greatest gospel is the life of Jesus that he acted for us as well as taught uh, in the deserts of Judea, in the hall of Pilate, on the cross, His patience shows us that evil is to be endured and his prayers point out to us how alone it can be alleviated. D.L. Moody said, It's like this. When a man enters the army, he's just as much a member as a man who's been in the army 10 or 20 years. But enlisting is one thing and participating in the battle is another. You see, no good soldier goes to war without being totally prepared and armed. And in the same way, God doesn't expect us to go to war without training and being unarmed. God has given us a defensive armor and he's given us offensive weapons that we need for the fight that we're in. And he expects us to fight. Let's look at verses 10 through 13 together. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able, notice, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day, in the evil day, and having done all to stand. What is the armor of God that we're supposed to wear? Paul goes on to name the different pieces of armor that we're to put on by faith. In 14, he says the girdle of truth. In verse 14, again, he says the breastplate of righteousness. In verse 15, he said to put on the shoes of peace. In 16, to put on the shield of faith. Verse 17, the helmet of salvation. In verse 17, the sword of the Spirit. 
And like I said, next week we'll go through each pieces of those armor and, and define what they're for, what they're being used for, and how they're used. Putting on this armor is important, but our position in the battle is even more important. And Paul's emphasis here is to stand. To stand, not hide, not sit, not retreat, not negotiate, not uh, compromise with the animal. And you notice there was no armor for the back. Because we were never meant to retreat. Never meant to retreat. In verse 14, he said, Stand having your waist girded with truth. Why? So that we can stand against the wiles of the devil in verse 11. So we can withstand or survive in the evil day, verse 13 says. And having done all this, we'll be able to stand, verse 13 says. So what's meant by standing? Many Christians get the wrong ideas about the purpose of the Christian's armor. The purpose of the army is to help us stand so that we don't lose our footing and lose the ground that Jesus has won for us. The whole book of Ephesians is all about our position as Christians. Chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians describes our wealth that we've inherited through our faith in Jesus Christ. Because of His grace, we have the privilege of sitting with Jesus in the heavenlies and sharing in His riches. In chapter 4, Paul tells us about our walk in Christ, that we're called to have a worthy walk. Because today we have the privilege of sitting with Jesus on His throne. We are to walk in the will of God and according to the calling that He's given us which means we're not to walk like the Gentiles, and that that means like those who don't know God. We are not to act, live, or walk like those who don't know God. We are to walk in love. We're to walk like children of the light, and we are to be careful to walk circumspectly. That means in wisdom, because the days are evil, and people, we are living in the most evil days that I have experienced or seen yet. Any Christian who's seated with Jesus on his throne and is walking with him is is being an effective witness for him to an evil world. And if they're walking in that way, they can expect they're going to be attacked by the enemy. Spiritual warfare goes hand in hand with our wealth and our walk. I'm speaking of spiritual wealth. The privilege of partaking in the riches of Christ's grace and his glory as part of his body, hey, that doesn't come without responsibilities. We shouldn't expect to sit with Jesus and walk with Jesus unless we are also willing to stand with Jesus in the battle against the devil. Jesus has already won the war for us. So now it's our responsibility to hold on to that victory. We need to remember that the purpose of our Christian armor is not to be used for gaining new territory. When Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he was talking about the movement of his army, the church, we are his army, in gaining territory and claiming the spoil. But even while we're conquering, we have to remember that we don't fight for victory, we're fighting from victory. Because Jesus has already won the battle. He's already gotten the victory for us. And we have, to, we, we have already entered our spiritual inheritance in him. Our role in the battle with the devil is that of claiming and holding on to the territory and the inheritance that Jesus has already won for us. 
We have a good example of this truth in Joshua chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. When the children of Israel were getting ready to enter the promised land of Canaan, God gave them the land. This was their inheritance. This is what God told Joshua. Arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving them. You and all the, okay, he says, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I have said to Moses. In other words, God was saying, start walking. You already have the inheritance. Now go get it by faith. While the Israelites had to go fight the inhabitants of the land, they didn't do it to conquer new territory, but just to go get the inheritance that God already had for them. But knowing that the, law, the land belonged to them and claiming it by faith wasn't enough. They also needed to have strength and courage. Three times, the Lord told Joshua to be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. Paul tells the people the same thing in verse 10 for our spiritual warfare. Having strength and courage is important, but not just for the times of battle, but also during the so-called times of peace. You still have to keep your guard up even at times of peace because that's when you're most vulnerable. Because it's during those so-called times of peace when you, you begin to relax, you let your guard down. Well, you know, we haven't been attacked for a long time. You know, we've got this under control. But it's when we relax and we've let our guard down that Satan attacks the hardest and he gains the most victories. In Luke 4, verse 13, it says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. The, the, the devil is patient. Our enemy is patient, and he waits, and he'll wait for the opportune time. And when he sees us complacent and waiting and resting and just, you know, not, we don't have our guard up, that's when he attacks. This also happened to the Israelites while Joshua was their leader. They conquered the land, and they got their inheritance. But it says, then a new generation grew up, and they didn't appreciate their inheritance. And they didn't know the Lord like they should have. So their strength and their courage just kind of faded away. And as a result, they couldn't stand against their enemies when they had to. What happened? They lost their inheritance. Judge, Judges 2 verse 10 says, Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. It's pretty scary how quickly the people could forget God and what he's done for them. Maybe the older generation didn't obey God's commands of what he told them in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9, to teach their children. God said to his people, teach your children about the commands I've given you. He said, teach them when they wake up, teach them when they go to bed, teach them when they're walking in the way, teach them every opportunity you get. Look at children today. Many of them are so messed up. They need to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Just like parents today, we have a responsibility to teach our children the word of God. Why? So that they can pass it on to generation to generation. Now here, maybe they did teach the children of their generation the word of God. But maybe they didn't want to hear it. There's a lot of people today, a lot of children, a lot of young people today who do not want to hear the word of God because of the things that are being taught in the colleges, indoctrinated in the worldview. They were happy in the land. Everything was going well. They didn't need God anymore. People today say they don't need God. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's us weak people. It's us uneducated people to cling to the, the word of God who believe in, in the things the Bible teaches. So the Lord, he let them be conquered by different nations. God's people. They didn't need God anymore. Look around what's happening to our nation today. Foreigners coming in, tearing down the American flag. On a Veterans Day, veterans who served or injured lost their life for this country. And they're coming in by the hundreds of thousands. And that's fine if they're here to assimilate. And like God's, God invited all the, the, the nations around to come in, but they had to serve him and they had to assimilate. No, they're coming in here to set up their own rules and their own ideas and to tear down the American flag. What does that tell you? And it's happening. Is the Lord going to let us be conquered by different nations? It sounds like it. Looks like they're they're coming in here. You know, they 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 laugh at our government, their weakness. Over and over again, the children of Israel would sin by rejecting God and and worshiping idols, and God allowed the surrounding nations to come in and to take over their inheritance. God gave us this country. This is our inheritance. And guess what's happening? The nations around us are coming in and trying to take our inheritance. And every time that happened, they couldn't stand against their enemy. Because they don't need God anymore. God's not allowed in the government. He's not allowed in the courthouses. He's not allowed in the schools. He's not allowed anywhere anymore. And we have to understand that even though we're seated in the heavenlies, we're still on earth. And before we can stand against the enemy and his army, we have to come to the Lord in prayer and in worship, and we have to put on the whole armor that he's given us. And again, we wear the armor not to gain new territory, but to stop the devil from robbing us of our inheritance. John said, watch out that you don't lose that which we have worked so hard for. 2 John 8. Satan wants to spoil and he wants to rob us of our spiritual wealth and he wants to make us slaves. Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief, speaking of the devil, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But you see, when we stand in in the strength and the power of the Lord, we will be victorious in our fight. 
But we need to stand up like Paul said. And all that's needed for evil to succeed is for good people to do nothing. So what are our responsibilities as a soldier of Christ? Not only do we have to be ready for our own ongoing battle with Satan, but we also have several responsibilities that we have to carry out if we're going to hold on to our inheritance and fight from victory and not for victory. Our responsibilities are threefold. First, we need to know who our enemies are. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.11, for we are not ignorant of his devices, or we shouldn't be. That's what he's inferring. We shouldn't be ignorant of his uh, devices. Secondly, we need to use the equipment that God has given us. And third, we have to depend on the strength and the power that God provides. Who is the enemy? Look at verse 12. Describes the enemy for us here. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, Satan just Satan isn't some cartoon character that we see a lot with, you know, red pajamas and a pitchfork and a pointed tail. A lot of people think he's just a made-up thing. He's not just a... He, Satan is... It isn't just a flesh and blood human being or an idea about evil. He's a living, personal, literal being with the power to control people and to do many evil things like he's doing today. When you see what's happening to kids, cutting off body parts, giving puberty blockers, meds to change their hormones, and to tell them, you weren't meant to be a boy, you weren't meant to be a girl. God made a mistake. That's what they're saying. God made a mistake. We need to fix you. That's demonic, people. That's demonic. The only transitioning I see in the Bible is to be transformed into the image of Christ. God doesn't make mistakes. This is man's doing, being moved by Satan himself. He's behind all of this stuff. What better explanation do you have for the evil that we see in our country? Some cartoon character? No, a real living spiritual being with great power. And he's moving in this country big time. Big time. We need to know that Satan has access to the heavenlies where we're seated because we saw him go before God with Job. And he talked to God about Job, his servant, who was faithful and he shunned evil. Through wiles and schemes and devices and strategies and craftiness, Satan attacks believers and he tries to get them to doubt his word and to get us to be unfaithful to him. And there's a lot of them that are falling because of this and believing what the world is telling them and giving in to the pressure to go along with the program. Satan knows that if he can cause us to become fearful, then he can rob us of all the riches that we've inherited. Knowing that we're seated on Christ's throne is worthless if we are afraid of the enemy. 
Our fear is what makes the devil able to rob us of enjoying our blessed position in Christ. The Bible tells us that we have three spiritual enemies. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world lures you with its allurements. Your flesh is always telling you to do it. It feels good. You deserve it. And the devil is behind the first two. He's behind the world and the flesh. And he uses whatever ways he can to get to you, and he'll use those that are even the closest to you. In verse 12, Paul made it clear that our problem is not people. The people are just the instruments that Satan is using. He's the driving force behind them. And as I've said many times, the, problem, the, 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 the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And only Jesus can change a heart. When strife and problems exist, our trouble isn't with the person, it's with the devil who's working through that person. And Satan can, use, uh, can even use Christians just the way he used Peter. Remember when Jesus was, was explaining God's plan for man's salvation? Satan was trying to use Peter to get Jesus' attention off of his father's plan for salvation. Peter was, uh, Satan was trying to use Peter to, to get Jesus to circumvent the cross. Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. To Peter, one of his disciples, he said, get behind me, Satan. The devil used Ananias and Sapphira, filling them with greed and lies. The enemy loves to control us, causing us to say and do things that we shouldn't do. And you know what? Apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing. And Satan is not an invention of the imagination. He's not some mythological or cartoon character. He's a real person, and he uses people, even, even people in the church. You might find that odd. Paul was writing here to people in the church. Paul was writing here to the church in Ephesus. Satan loves to go to church. He loves to work in the church. He loves using the church to carry out his evil plans. Satan goes to church too. Luke 1, verse 23 and 24 says, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. He went to church through the man, in the man, as an unclean spirit. And it says he cried out, Jesus, let us alone. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? The demon said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He's strong and he's powerful. The Bible calls devil, the devil a lion, a dragon, a destroyer, a liar. His strategies and his wiles are subtle, but they are deadly. And it's no wonder because 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Paul says, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. The word wiles means to intrigue them. Jesus said, put on the armor of God so that you can stand against the wiles of the devil, that you can stand against those things that he uses to intrigue you, to draw you. 1 Peter 5, 8 Peter said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Have you ever watched one of those nature programs 
and you've watched lions stalk a flock of deer, whatever it is, what are they waiting for? What are they looking for? That one little animal that's way off in the distance from the rest of the flock, who's weak, who's hurting, who's by himself. Satan does the same thing. You get out there. You get away from God. You get away from his word. You get away from the church. He's got his eyes on you. He's seeking you like a roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. Satan is well organized. Verse 12 says he has a whole army of demons ready at his command. That's why we need to know our enemy. We need to use the power of the armor that we have been given and depend on the strength and power that we can only have because God gives us to us. He gives it to us. And if we're going to win the battle over Satan, we need to put it on. We need to wear it. You know how foolish it would be for a, for a soldier to go to battle without his gear and expect to get victory. Christians do it all the time. They go out into the world without the prayer, without the word, without God. And then they get beat up and, oh God, how come this happened to me? We have to fight the battle of wrong and evil or it will take uh, the world into a, a dark new age, which I believe we're in now. Unless Christians stand firm. But we can't fight in our own strength and in our own power. Not one of us can stand against the spiritual forces of evil that Paul mentioned in verse 12. We can't fight it in our own strength. Not even for a second. But in Christ, we can fight on the victory. And the basic reality given us in the book of Ephesians is that as believers, we are in Christ. And we are one with him. His life is our life. His power is our power. His truth is our truth. His way is our way. And as Paul goes on to say here, his strength is our strength. And he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, for when I am weak, I am then strong. In other words, when I recognize I can't do it, Lord, I need you, ah, that's when I get strength because it's his strength that he gives me. The Lord's strength and his power is always more than enough for the battle. When Jesus told the church at Philadelphia, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have little strength. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus was saying there that even a little power was enough to, to, to preserve them, to keep them because it was the Lord's power, natural power. Our own strength is never enough, never strong enough to fight Satan. But when we're strong in the Lord, even a little of his strength is enough to win any battle. Paul said, I can do all things through, strength, through Christ who strengthens me. It's not the amount of the strength that we have that's important. It's the source. Where are you getting your strength? And in the greatest sense, the church's battle with Satan has already been won. They're already won. We won it through his crucifixion and resurrection. When Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected, he destroyed Satan's power. And he destroyed the power over sin and death. Trusting in Jesus brings a person into that victory to the point that a Christian is strong in the Lord and his victory over the worst 
that Satan has to throw at him is guaranteed. In closing, we are in a war, a fierce and terrible war, but we have no reason to be afraid. If God is for us, who can be against us? No need to be afraid if we're on the Lord's side. But using that strength, God's strength comes by way of His grace, prayer, knowledge, and obedience to His word and faith in the promises of God. Now, after many years of, uh, of ministry, Timothy got a little fearful maybe, and a little timid. Maybe it was because, you know, he was dealing with stronger temptations than he had expected. And maybe he was experiencing more opposition than he expected. But listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy, and it's what he's writing and saying to you this morning. I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. You, therefore, my son, my daughter, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for this awesome, this awesome text. Father, Lord, let us not fear. Let us not be ashamed. Let us not be embarrassed to speak your name, God. To tell people there's but one God. And that apart from you, we can't do anything. Father, they need the truth. Help us to, t to tell the truth, God. Because this world right now is be believing a lie. A big lie, a bad lie. The spirit of lawlessness is in the land. God, we need you. We need your help. Help us to be good soldiers, Lord. Good soldiers. Standing on solid ground. And God, prepare us to learn next week about the armor that we put on, what it's to be used for, how it's used. And Father, I pray right now that if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, but through the message and through the Spirit of God, He's touched their hearts and they recognize, I need Christ's strength. I need to be a soldier of Christ. Because if you're not, you're a soldier of the enemy. There are, there's no middle ground. If you're not a Christian, you're not born again. You are, you are a slave or an instrument of Satan. Bottom line, you better be on the right side when this war is over. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you want to join his army and be a part of his kingdom. As we're praying, just put up your hand real quick and you can put it back down. Anybody at all? Anybody want to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Put on his uniform. 
serve his kingdom? Anybody? Father, we come to you now and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit, Lord. Father, thank you seems like such a meaningless word in the sense of what we, we owe you, God. But we could never repay. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness in our life, your grace. And Lord, let us stand firm in a shaky world. Father, we thank you for the offering we will receive today. We thank you also for, again, your faithfulness, your generosity, your goodness towards us, Lord. Taking care of us as a good father would. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, we invite you to come.